All right, y'all, let's stand for the hearing of God's word as we look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Reading from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. All right, y'all, take your seats, please. So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, plant the imperishable seed into our hearts. Would you cause even now the roots to go down deep and to bear fruit in our lives? The fruit of seeing you, the fruit of trusting you, the fruit of life change, the fruit of your grace going to different places in our relationships and out into the community and areas that we aren't yet experiencing you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, y'all, so what's this creepy passage doing? Where's it going? Where's it taking us? When you come to the scriptures, you always got to ask that question. Anytime you open the scriptures, it's always like, okay, where's this passage going? Where's it taking you? Because the, the scripture is taking you somewhere. What's capturing the world, the theological world right now, and the academy right now, is this theory called speech act theory. And it's really fascinating. It's kind of tapping into the heart of what the scriptures are all about. And what speech act theory is saying is that communication or words are not just conveying information. They're getting things done. So when God is speaking, it's the same thing as his acting. When God speaks, he acts. It's remember, is, the, is anything happening when we read the scriptures? Yes. It's a double-edged sword. And so what's happening in this text is what's the speech act? Where is it taking you and me? What's it doing to us? It's acting on you. It's working on you. He's moving. He's active in your life in and through and with the scriptures. How? Where? Well, last week we saw Carol Bilek share her relationship with the sea, remember? I built my house by the sea, not on the sands, mind you, not on the shifting sand. I built my house on rock of rock, a strong house by a strong sea. And then she told us how she and the sea were well acquainted. In fact, that they were quite neighborly, but in a weird kind of way. Like she said, not that we spoke much. We met in silences, respectful, keeping our distances, looking at each other across the fence of sand. And that fence of sand is so key. The fence of sand stands between her and the sea. It's actually the basis for their neighborliness. 
But then one day the sea came over the fence of sand. And it came without warning and it came without welcome. And when the sea comes, it changes everything. She said, when the sea comes, you stop being neighbors. Quote, you give your house for a coral castle. And then she says some words that have birthed many a book, many a counseling perspective, and many a psychiatrist pursuit. She says these words, you learn to breathe underwater. Do you know what this creepy passage is doing? It wants to teach you and me to breathe underwater. It's going to do two things. One, it's going to have to help us get straight what our strength is. In other words, what strength? Have you ever asked that? Like, what is real strength? How do you know when you have it? Is my strength strength? Or is there another source of strength? What is that strength? How do you get into that strength? And that'll lead us to the second question. Once we figure out what strength is, we're going to look at how you become strong in whatever that strength is. We're going to practically roll up our sleeves and see how this passage does that. Are you with me? Okay, so what is strength? Well, in 2012 BC, there's a mathematician and philosopher, an inventor by the name of Archimedes. Anybody heard of Archimedes? Oh yeah, there we go. Archimedes is reportedly says this, if I only had a place to stand, I could move the world. Today we call that what? The Archimedean point. If there was just a place some place, some sphere of power that I can stand outside of my own sphere, I can move the world. Every single one of us here this morning are struggling with a point of power or strength in our life. We are looking to move the world. We're looking to move our lives. We're working to establish an identity. We're trying to leverage some sort of power to give us affection and affirmation. We're looking for some sort of power to actually leverage control and confidence in our relationship. We're just looking for simple energy to do the next thing, right? T.S. Eliot in his play, The Cocktail Party, has a main character named Sir Henry Harcutt Riley. I, I don't understand these long names for these really good poets and writers. But he's a psychiatrist, and he comments this. He says, half of the harm that's done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm. The harm does not interest them. Or they don't see it, or they justify it. Why? Why are they doing all this? Because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. We tend to find our point of strengths and things that we think will help us think well of ourselves. Do you notice that? My point of strength becomes my beauty, not mine, because I'm not saying me. Generically, my point of strength becomes our beauty. Our point of strength becomes our children's accomplishments. Our point of strength becomes our career successes. Our point of strength becomes 
the attention we get from others, from whatever keeps shame away from us, that becomes a, an Archimedes point, a point of strength. And you know what Paul is offering here? Something so much better. He's offering you a point of strength that you can actually stand on and breathe underwater. Do you notice how he says it four times, standing? Look at this. This is incredible. It's the aim or the goal of the passage. So where's this passage going? What's it trying to do? Breathe underwater. But specifically for Paul, he's using the language of standing. The aim or the goal is to have you stand. I mean, look in verse 11. That, here comes the aim, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 13. That, the aim or the goal, the purpose of all that I'm saying in Ephesians 6 is that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Verse 13 again, and that, the aim, the purpose, what I want to see accomplished by writing this is that you may be able to have done all to stand firm. And then verse 14, stand therefore, the purpose, the aim is to stand, and then he tells you how to do it with a bunch of participles. Here's the picture. After all the dust settles, after the smoke clears, after the chaos is over, after the sea has rolled in, what's left? You standing there, breathing underwater. Now, how does that happen? I mean, what is, where is he standing though? Where is he standing where that happens? How do you get that strength? I want you to notice that the aim here is to stand, not advance. The aim here is to hold ground, not take ground. Why? Because the ground has already been taken. Because the ground has already been won. And the call is to stand on that. If you and I get this in this text, we are well on our way of getting what true strength is in the passage. In other words, in verse 10, become strong in the Lord. That is the strength of his might. And remember, we saw that the strength of his might, his might has already been defined. It's already been developed. Ephesians 1 is all about the might. It's all about his resurrection. It's all about his exaltation. It's all about his victory. It's all about his triumph. It's all about his salvation, his finished work. And so in other words, the point is become strong in Jesus and his salvation. The strength in the text is the victory of another. It's the triumph of another. And learning to breathe underwater is learning to stand on that ground that's already been won. There's a quick application here, and, and this is it. Whatever the specific, look at verse 11. Do you see the schemes of the devil? I know that creeps all of us out, but there are schemes of the devil out there, and whatever they are, whatever they are, we're going to look at what they're about. So he's been around for thousands and thousands of years. He's much smarter than you. He knows how everything works. He knows more about math than you do. He knows more about physics than you do. He knows more about chemistry than you do. He knows more about the Bible than you do. He knows, and he knows what trips up humans. 
He knows. So he has schemes. No matter what the specific ones are for you, though, there's an, there's an ultimate end game to what he's trying to do. And then in verse 16, the flaming darts of the evil one, again, whatever those specific ones are, who knows what they are? Don't you wish that he would tell us? I mean, Paul just says these things like it's easy for him to say, and we're all going, what? Paul, could you go back a little bit? What did you mean by schemes? Could you just, could you develop that a little bit more? Can you help us out a little bit? What did you have in mind when you wrote that? He doesn't do that. He just moves on. It's almost like he cares, but he doesn't care. This much is clear. All the aim, the purpose, the goal of specific darts of the schemes of the devil, you know what they're designed to do? To move us off conquered ground. To move us off already won ground. Any scheme, any flaming dart, his ultimate goal is to get you and me off of standing on victorious ground and get us into advancing and fighting and conquering and winning and trying to do it on our own. That means that all the self-help books and Christian books and things that are out there that are all telling you how to win your life and how to take control of the world and how to advance your sanctification and how to go forward in this way and that could be schemes. Joel Greiner writes of his exit from pastoral staff. He was in a very influential megachurch, and he writes about his exit from that church. He said that the externals of his ministry looked great. It was just that his soul was breaking down. He said, quote, I was sad, scared, insecure, and at times paranoid. I operated in an incredible bind between the man I was and the man I thought I needed to be, and that tension was destroying him. I quickly came to discover that ministry in this context only exasperated the anxiety and the clinical depression I'd personally battled for so long. Now, don't miss what he says next here. The declaration made by Christ that it is finished stands in stark contrast with the church that needs to win or Paul would say advance. For that church, the motto is, it is never finished. The goal of demonic activity is to move you and me off it is finished into the dark world of it is never finished. And to keep you in there. Fighting and striving and mastering and controlling and anxiety and discouragement. So how do we do that, though? How do we become strong in the Lord? That is the strength of his might. How do we live in the world of it is finished and move out of the world of it is never finished? How do we do that? Practically, how do we do that? I want you to look at verse 14. How we stand is this, stand therefore, do you see that? By, and then he lists all these participles. And he gives you six pieces of armor in participle form that are designed to be put on. And so his meaning is this, the point is not, here. please hear me, the point is not, oh, I hope you don't forget article number five, because if you do, the point is, oh man, make sure you got all six pieces because if you go in, in fact, let's have a check before you go out. This is what every spouse 
should be doing, every husband and wife, before they go out. Got your helmet? Oops, you don't have your helmet. Sorry, sweetie, did that hurt? Do you got your, got your cleats on? Got your, that's not the point of this, per, this verse. It's not to arm you to go do battle. And make sure you got your pieces right or you're going to get slaughtered. The point here is to learn how to put on the gospel. These six pieces are six beautiful cuts in the diamond called the gospel. It's just giving you one breathtaking concentration of splendor and power and then spinning to another and giving you that. It's the multi-endless forms of the gospel that meet multi-forms of need in our life. In other words, it's to put on the gospel. It's not make sure you have each individual article and that it's on a specific body part because it has a specific function for that body part. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is the gospel is a diamond and it's giving you multiple endless slivers of splendor, multiple concentrations of life-giving power. And as you get exposed to it and as you begin to actually put it on in your life and work it into your life, that is how the strength comes. The battle imagery here is not of a Roman soldier or legionnaire Please make sure you have your pieces on or you're doomed. It's much more powerful than that. It's much more breathtaking than that. It's much more God-like than that. In other words, what's happening here is this is actually, Paul is borrowing language from an Old Testament image in Isaiah. In Isaiah, Israel is lost. And you know what they're lost in? Their sin. And they're lost in the consequences of their sin because sin is a decreative power. It's the sea. It's not something we commit. It's something we're in. It's the singular. It's the power. It's the, it's the sphere, right? It's a domain. It's a kingdom. And in that kingdom, sin breaks down and sin disintegrates and sin is the flood taking back creation. And it does that to us personally, psychologically, relationally. It does that in all the ways we handle the world. That's what sin does. And in Israel, it's happening. So much so that the people say, listen, we hope for light, but we get darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Salvation is so far from us, they say in Isaiah. And then the text says that the Lord looks for someone to save Israel. He looks for a deliverer, a rescuer. He looks for someone to do something. And he finds none. And then you know what the text says? God stands up and puts on his armor and saves Israel himself. This picture is the picture of the armor of God, not a wee little legionnaire of a God that comes to fight and to win and to deliver and to rescue and to help and to heal and to comfort and to be with and to love. Paul is borrowing from Isaiah this image to help us be like, oh my word, it's better than I thought. 
And then he gets specific and he says things and he's trying to help us learn to put on it as finished. He's trying to help us to learn to put on Christ. And in fact, in other places in Ephesians, you basically say he's saying, put on your new self. In Ephesians 4, he's basically saying the same thing. He's just using a different picture now. Put on your new self. Put on Jesus. Clothe yourself in Jesus and his finished work. Start learning to stand on ground that's already been taken. Don't get moved off that ground. Stand. Breathe underwater. So he put, talks about the belt, and the belt, notice that the belt is endless truths of the gospel. This is endless truths to meet endless forms of need in your life. He just goes and says the truth because it covers all the bases. And then he goes into the breastplate, and the breastplate is the righteousness of another, not our righteousness. So he's saying, listen, put on the righteousness of another. Stop living in the world of your own righteousness. The world of your own righteousness is anxiety. The world of your own righteousness is discouragement. The world of your own righteousness is always being on trial and feeling like you're being judged and accused and never being good enough and never measuring and never feeling welcomed and never feeling loved. Put that off. Then he goes to the cleats. Some say shoes. I don't know why they say shoes, because even if, if it's a Roman legionnaire's shoes, it's spiked cleats. Because the, the, even, let's say it is a Roman legionnaire. Do you know why they were feared? They weren't feared because they painted their faces blue, like some of your ancestors. Yeah, I know some of you folks out there. And went hollering and screaming like a barbarian that you are, right? That's why you have it in your blood. The reason why the Romans were feared, it wasn't because they chanted and it wasn't because they beat their swords and it wasn't because they banged their drums and it wasn't because they painted their faces and made them look like monsters. And the reason why they were feared, because they just stood there and held their ground. And every, arm, every army broke on them. That's the picture here. You got cleats going down into the soil of the peace of God, and you won't move. And the peace of God is complete wholeness. You don't have to try to heal yourself. You've been healed, you're being healed, and one day you'll fully experience it. The other is this shield, the shield of faith. What that's talking about is now it's getting personal because this is when the flaming darts are coming, right? So now he talks about the shield because it's deeply personal. Now you actually have to trust Jesus and his salvation in specific areas of your life. It's deeply personal. So when darts are coming at you and schemes are coming at you, they're tailor-made for you. Remember, the design is to move you off conquered ground. But what moves you off conquered ground and me off conquered ground is a little different probably. So it's personal. The shield of faith is learning to trust Jesus and his salvation in those areas of your life that maybe you don't know about or don't trust him in. That's what the shield of faith is. Then you got the helmet and the helmet, it's the helmet. You just imagine the picture because in Isaiah, it literally says that God picks up the helmet of salvation and puts it on his head. In other words, this is the world of it is finished. 
And it calls you and invites you out of the world, the dark world of it is never finished. And then the last one, you got the sword, and this is absolutely breathtaking. This goes back to the speech act stuff. Notice that this is the Spirit's sword. What? The Spirit has a sword. The Spirit cuts, the Spirit reaches, the Spirit works, the Spirit fills, the Spirit anoints, the Spirit moves, the Spirit heals, the Spirit justifies, the Spirit sanctifies. Well, how do you say the Spirit rides on the wind of the Word, specifically the message of good news? So how do you get the Holy Spirit? How do you get God to work in your life? How do you get Him to work in other people's life? Grab the sword. It's the Spirit's sword. It's the gospel. Jesus and his salvation. Let's end with how to specifically do this. We're running out of time. Look at verse 18. I confess that many, there's, there's not unanimity here. There is not unanimity with the interpretation of what I'm about to say next. Some folks say this praying part is the seventh article of the armor. I don't know. I just don't see prayer. We're talking, about, we're talking about gospel armaments. Is prayer a gospel armament or is prayer something we do? Because the gospel is what Jesus does. Is praying what Jesus does? No. So I don't think it's an armament. I think it's something else. And you know what I think it is? Prayer now becomes the way in which you get the gospel into your heart. I think what Paul is saying in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, his point here is pray the gospel into your heart. If Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was here, this is what he would say. He's a great former pastor, preacher, called the greatest of the Puritans, the last great Puritan preacher. He preached in London. He struggled with depression. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, and this is what he says about it. He says, listen, stop listening to your heart. Stop listening to your soul. Stop listening to what it tells you is true. Instead, speak to your soul. Tell your soul what's true. And I think that's what's happening here. When you're praying in the Spirit, you're grabbing your heart and you're saying to your heart in light of all the incredible truths that have just been illuminated for us, you speak the power of the gospel to your heart in the presence of God. So it's you in conversation with Jesus, with the message of the gospel, you're thinking, prayerful thinking in the presence of Jesus about who he is and what he's done. And you're bringing it to bear in your life and you're bringing it to bear on specific petitions, which are areas of need that you feel. And in doing so, you start working, the Holy Spirit starts working and you start praying, and it starts being worked into your heart. Historically, this has been called meditation, which is prayerful thinking in the presence of God. One theologian puts it this way, biblical meditation, unlike the popular varieties, is not a relaxation technique for emptying the mind, but rather one that fills it with truth, using thought and memory to set your heart on fire. So here's the point. How does this specifically happen? How do you specifically learn to breathe underwater? How do you specifically learn to stand? According to this passage is you've got all these images, the multifaceted, beautiful concentrations of power and life in Jesus and his salvation. Start praying them into your heart. 
Start thinking about them out loud in your heart before God. Meditation. And then as life and God and as you grow and build in your messy life around Jesus, you start becoming strong in the Lord. That is in the strength of his might. You breathe underwater. David Zoll has written an article called The Epidemic. It's about the epidemic of suicide. It's the leasing cause of death for Americans between the ages of 15 and 49. Did you hear me? The leading cause of death, outpacing all cancers, outpacing heart disease. It is now the leading cause of death for Americans between the age of 15 and 49. That is an epidemic. Throughout the article, he asks, how might the grace of God be brought to bear here? It's a great article, highly recommend it. David Zoll, Mockingbird Journal, their article on uh, mental health. It's fantastic. One of the things that he says at the article, it happens at the end of it, and it struck me. I mean, he says lots of great things in there. In fact, how to actually uh, work through this if you've experienced this in your family or friends or your sphere of influence or trying to help somebody else. It's, it's fantastic pastoral uh, help. And by pastoral, I don't mean you have to be a pastor. I just mean by helping someone, shepherd a heart. At the end of it, he says this, the larger lesson is simply that people are suffering. Out of all the stuff he talks about, all the, everything he talks about, he says, listen, the larger lesson in all this, people are suffering. And then he goes on to say, listen, they're not, I mean, he goes, I mean, really suffering and not suffering out there. I mean, they're suffering in here right now. Now they're suffering. Oh, that got my attention. Paul would say, friends, the sea is already here. You don't have to look for it. The fence of sand is gone. You're already underwater. But Jesus, the one who walks on the sea, calls the sea to himself and ends it. And now invites every downtrodden downcast, defeated, drowned human being, come to me. Stand on conquered ground, and I'll give you rest, and I'll teach you to become strong. I'll teach you how to do life. I'll teach you how to breathe underwater.